Welcome to SkyCast episode 51, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 7, episode 8, Anaconda. So what did we think about this episode? Uh, well, I have definitely been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Um, I was really curious what they were going to do with the prequel. And I've got to say, um, and I say this with all the love in my heart for The 100, and it is that this episode was so refreshing for me to watch. And I realized it's because it didn't have all of the baggage that the hundred now comes with, you know, all of the like external fandom drama um, and all of the editorial choices that we don't disagree with. It's like something new. And so I really loved it. And I was almost weirdly a little disappointed when we like had the episode end and flashback to Clark and them. Cause I was like, Oh yeah. Ugh, we're still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Yeah, it's funny. I generally don't love backdoor pilot episodes as much because I think they obviously are trying to do a lot of setup and deviate from the current story as much as possible in order to branch off and do a spinoff series. Um, with that said, though, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I was very pleasantly... I was really nervous about this. <laughs> and I, I was like trying to keep it contained because like I really again I'm just very suspicious of backdoor pilots I just I I think they're very clunky most of the time Mm -hmm. and this you know I thought they did a really good job you know aligning the seams with this I mean obviously it was yet another episode in the last season of the hundred that we didn't spend with our heroes yeah which is really frustrating for me that we've basically made our original crew side characters uh-huh. in this final season um so I'm frustrated with that but I will have to say as a spinoff and as a way to whet our appetites for this spinoff series um I thought this was excellent I thought there were a lot of characters that were super intriguing I think there are a lot of themes that we're interested in um and yeah overall I just thought it was a very well executed and very well written um, episode. Yeah, I I think what this episode did really well, at least in my opinion, is that it balanced the new stuff, but also added a lot more mystery for the rest of season seven, um, which I think is really hard to do in a backdoor pilot. So, sure. uh, props to them for that. And and I, I gotta say it, I I wasn't sure what the backdoor pilot or the the pilot or the the prequel itself was gonna look like, but yeah. after this, I'm. I really hope it gets picked up because it just feels very different and fun. And I really love Callie. Um, And so, yeah, I, yeah. And I also wanted to say like for all of our disagreements um, and frustrations with Jason, I think one of the reasons why Jason Rothlenberg, who's the show's producer and creator um, and also the creator of the spinoff series. um, I think one of the reasons why this backdoor pilot was as successful as it was is because he has spent a lot of time fleshing out, and um world building in in this whole world and i think that really shows yeah and i think that this um new prequel gives him almost a second chance to correct a lot of the mistakes that i think the hundred made and i'm sure i mean i don't know if jason and i would specifically agree on what things were mistakes but i'm sure that he also has things that he wished he'd done differently um and this is just like a second chance yes a second dawn, if you will. <laughs> but um, before we get into the recap, I also um wanted to take a second and thank um Penuski. 
I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, yeah. For um, <laughs> leaving us a stellar review on um, Apple iTunes this week. We really, truly appreciate it, um, which is a good reminder to everybody to go and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other fans of The 100 find us, and we just really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Panuski. So thank you so much. A special shout-out to Panuski, and then thank you, everyone else, who just um, engages and interacts with us on Twitter and in an email. We really appreciate it, guys. Yeah. Um, keep it coming. We like pretending we have friends. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. Especially in quarantine. <laughs> Especially in quarantine. <laughs> like joke, yeah. but no joke. Um, all right, let's get into the recap. Okay, let's do it. So Clark and the group are processing the news of Bellamy's death when Bill Cadigan enters. Clark recognizes him, which leads Bill to ask if his daughter Callie is in the flame, which Bill believes is still in Clark's head. So when we open here, it's like essentially right where we closed on, which was you know, Clark's um, devastated face. And what I thought was really cool about how they set up this like opening shot is that Clark seems like she is about to fall apart, but then she looks over at Raven and Raven too is just like looking devastated. And I think seeing someone else on her team that she needs to help is what allows her to kind of pull herself together and go over and comfort Raven, you know, instead of someone comforting her. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And it's I also, just so Clark, you know? <laughs> it's so Clark. I also want to mention that, like, another reason why this opening shot works so well is because they don't have a cold open. Yeah. Um. Wait. Oh, yeah. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, they don't have a cold open. Yeah. So there's no setup for this. It's, like, straight into the action. It's immediately where we picked up last episode. Um, and it just really plays very seamlessly and almost acts as part two to part one of season of, of episode seven, um, which, again, I think is another reason why this works so well as a backdoor pilot is very seamlessly woven into the storyline of um, what is already happening in this current season. Mm-hmm. I also really appreciated this Clark and Raven moment. Um, because you can tell there's like a lot of silent communication happening here, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they're sharing this very deep understanding look with each other. And it's like they are cataloging everyone they've ever lost and everything they've ever been through together and reminding themselves that they have to pick themselves up and make it through this day and fight to live another day and save the people they can save. Um, and you can really just tell that it's the two of them together remembering everything they've been through and I really really appreciate that mm-hmm. um yeah and I I mean with just this group here with Clark's group um out of all of them uh Clark and Raven have by far the deepest connection with Bellamy mm-hmm. um so I get why those are kind of the two that need to have their own private moment but that's not to discount Miller and his relationship with Bellamy which has been fraught at times but you know Miller was on Team Bellamy from the very beginning, uh, from season one, and I like that we got just a brief moment here with Miller's grief, that he's, like, so in shock that he kind of stumbles over his words when he asks um, Nyla and Jordan to secure the room. Yeah, it was really well done. Um, Nyla, of course, is trying to, like, sneak around Bill Cadigan and starts talking to Clark and Trigg. Of course, Bill understands Trigg and immediately is like, no, no, we're not a cult. We're a collective of the greatest minds trying to save Earth, trying to save the human race. Yeah, it's um, like, says it's like, every cult leader ever. That's cute, Bill, but you're, you're a cult. <laughs> Definitely. Like, you call your people the disciples. <laughs> you call yourself a shepherd. Yeah. Like, you're, you're a cult. A cult. <laughs> um, and I thought it was really interesting, too. He reveals here that um, his daughter, Callie, is the one who invented Trigetus Lang as a child. How do we feel about this revelation? Um, 
Uh, I mean, I'm going to withhold judgment. I'm curious how it plays out in the prequel. I think it's kind of dumb. I also um, think it's kind of dumb. Because the way that they had explained it before this was that Trigetislang was like a kind of pigeon that um, arose when different clans were kind of forming toward the beginning, like right after the apocalypse, and they wanted to um, have a language that only their people could understand, and then it kind of grew from there. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really a cool explanation for it. And now I'm like, so all of the grounders are now speaking a language that some child invented? But also, and how how did they all learn it? And, you know. I mean, and also I think it's, I, I really liked what that, what that said about how those cultures came together and how a new civilization sort of emerged from it. I think it's less interesting mm-hmm. if Callie is the one who came up with it. Like, that's just... My one thought is I wonder if Callie began teaching people in the bunker, like her, her allies, Trigetta Slang as a way to like, no, because Cadigan knew Trigetta yeah. Slang. So maybe it was just like as a way to like talk around the disciples when the disciples were there. Um, I could kind of see then why if the group as they're leaving the bunker already knows Trigetta Slang, how it can kind of evolve from there. I don't know. It's, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. <laughs> Um, but Gabriel, we were really worried at the end of last episode. Gabriel uh, very clearly is like an actual disciple now, at least in dress. And he's got the tattoos on his face. He's a level three. Um, and we really, we didn't know where his loyalties lied. Uh, but we see here that he is still protecting Clark and her people. Oh, yeah. Um, he, Bill, like, kind of talking about the flame, or he calls it the key, and Clark's like, you know, what is that? And Gabriel's like, oh, you know the key, Clark. You know that, that flame that you have in your head? Wink, wink. wink. The <laughs> one that's still in your yeah, head. Yeah, it's still there. And then Clark catches on, obviously. That's why you're so important to them, and that's why they need you to be alive. alive. <laughs> <laughs> and she catches on super quickly as of course. only Clark will. Yeah. Um, and but then you I, see as soon as she catches on, like there is this real look of relief on Gabriel's face. Yeah. Like this is what he was planning. This is what he was trying to intimate. She picked up on it. And now he's relieved. So like, he's he's definitely playing both sides because I, I mean, like he's obviously trying to protect um, Echo Octavia and Hope and all of them in the current Bardo society, but he's protecting Clark's people too. But he also really wants to study the anomaly. Yeah. And so he's kind of just like, he's um, trolling around. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ultimately Gabriel's a real one and I love him. Yeah. And great. I just, I hope that by the end of this season, Gabriel gets to be with his true love, which is like the anomaly stone. I would love for him to like have like all the ultimate anomaly stone knowledge, you know, like, <laughs> like a little library and he can just yeah. write like his, like, or maybe he like actually goes into the anomaly at the end and like lives inside well, maybe. of it. Maybe that would be cool. Yeah. This, so they're ultimately reunited. Him and him and Goad, <laughs> or Code, <laughs> Code forever. <laughs> so in the flashback, we meet Callie, who's recently dropped out of MIT to join a protest group called Tree Crew. <clears throat> I'm done. Callie is a call with her father, Bill, who isn't pleased about her decision. But before they can argue too much, Bill receives word that missiles are heading toward Washington, D.C., and he tells Callie and her mom to come to the Second Dawn bunker immediately. Callie doesn't want to leave her friend Lucy behind, but she ultimately chooses to go with her mother to the bunker. (laughs) So from the very beginning of this season with um, Callie and Lucy alone in their room and, you know, Lucy's being stitched up by Callie. And honestly, like this whole scene, seeing it play out, I was getting big gay vibes. 
Oh, same. Big gay vibes, but especially from Lucy. Um, and so I just keep thinking, like, surely because the hundred was lauded, um, especially in the beginning when they made Clark or when they like revealed that Clark was bisexual, um, it was lauded as being, you know, just a really um, progressive, progressive yeah. move. And I, I cannot imagine that one of the main characters isn't going to be queer. Um, I, I can't really imagine them having a straight female lead. <laughs> so I keep wondering, like, is, is Callie going to be lesbian? Is she going to be pan? Is she going to be bi? Like, who knows? But Beyond labels? Is she you know? beyond labels? Is she ace? I don't think she's ace. I don't think she's ace, but... I don't know. It could be. Yeah. It could be. She was she was into August Sabs, I won't lie. <laughs> you would have to be deaf, blind, and dumb <laughs> not to be into August Sabs. Okay. Um, but anyway, so I, I just am wondering if this is something that we're going to kind of see play out in greater detail if the prequel gets picked up. Is like, was there something there with her and Lucy beyond best friends? Don't know, but I'm curious to find out. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I was almost shocked when they were like, my friend, Lucy. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> friend it's very uh bell arc is that what we're calling it these days um uh, again maybe they're beyond labels yeah um so yeah we get so many easter eggs in this scene we we had to pause like every three seconds less actually every second freeze framed <laughs> yeah because there was so much to talk about um just in all the background noise mm-hmm. um one of them obviously is we learn that the protest group that callie and lucy are a part of is tree crew um but it's spelled in english uh-huh. So we have not quite evolved into the to the Trigetta Slank version of Tree Crew. Um, and they are participating in peaceful protests against riot cops. Yeah. Um, so not only are there a lot of Easter eggs in this uh, section, there are a lot of oddly timed parallels to our mo- or current timeline, which was truly, honestly, very disturbing yeah, to me. Yeah, it's a little haunting. I mean, not that there haven't been, like, peaceful protests that cops have instigated violence at in the past of course. many times but it, it is hitting at a particular moment in society uh right now that you know it, it does make you do a double take like is there like some sort of did, well, did you write this I like, mean, like not knowing only the that future? but we see on the news there's a health crisis from a russian um origin origin virus there's also um internment camps happening yeah i mean i was gonna say like what are these internment camps um and who are they for it says that the internment camp specifically that they were mentioning in the news was in wayne county which is in new york um and so i really just couldn't figure out like who who are you interning and we knew that the u.s is really screwed up um you know dioza became a freedom fighter for for some cause that we still don't really know about um but we knew it wasn't great uh we do hear something really cool here which is that the current president's name is Wallace yeah the Wallace administration uh so I mean I think that's pretty obvious that this person must be some sort of ancestor of Cage and Dante Wallace and Mount Weather yeah um which is also new information it is new information and and it makes me question like why was the president taken to Mount Weather specifically I mean I guess the missiles did come and hit the actual White House but you know wasn't there like a closer bunker than that maybe not maybe not I don't know but I, I think that was a really cool little yeah, info dump there. Yeah, there's so many parallels happening with our current timeline right now. It was honestly insane. Mm-hmm. Um, we also learn that Becca has been missing for a year and is believed to be on her space station Polaris, which we know is true. Um, and we also learn that she owns this broadcasting company, which they're watching the news on, and has the Infinity Sign logo on it. Yes. Which is very cool. 
Yes, Becca's very, very um, multifaceted. Yeah, she's and a, has a lot of money. She has a, she's a tech tycoon. <laughs> I don't really agree with um, someone like her owning a news station. I know it happens in our world too. It really does. I think it it you know muddies the water a little bit, um, but it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. Grace, uh, Callie's mother, Grace, knocks on the door and Lucy and Callie kind of scramble to hide their weed and <laughs> the blood that was on Lucy. I'm not, I guess Grace must not have known what happened to them at the uh, at the protest. Um, and then Callie sits down and pretends to read uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, which I'm about 99%. And I wish I would have checked this before we actually got into this episode, but I'm pretty sure this is the exact same book that Octavia finds on the book cart uh, at the beginning of season five when they had just gone into the bunker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was like a nice little nod to that. And Jason even said on Twitter, like, did you notice what book she's reading? Mm. Which I love, except for the fact that it doesn't make any sense why uh, Callie would have brought this book into the bunker. Because as we see later on in this, you know, scene that follows um they just grab their doomsday packs and run like callie doesn't go up to her room and like pick up some books you right know? totally it would have made more sense if she'd been reading it in the bunker itself yeah yeah um it's also interesting here that we see uh Cadigan taught callie how to fight but her mother taught Callie how to heal. Um, and that's a very Clark-like and Abby-like uh, as well, is that she has that kind of connection with her mother mm-hmm. through healing and through medicine. Yeah, I think, her, you know, Grace is a really interesting character. I was really surprised when she saw Lucy's wound and her first response was not concern or anger, but pride at Callie's stitches. I was expecting like a mom, you know, lecture. And instead she was like, nice job on those stitches. Yeah, I mean, I think she was not pleased, but I think she also has realized at this point that, like, my daughter is an adult and I can't tell her what to do and it's just going to piss her off. So she tried to, like, you know, turn the corner and be like, oh, good job. No, exactly. It's a very evolved response from a parent. Sure. Um, well, Grace is it's quite the woman. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. She's super interesting. Yeah. Um, Callie has a really great line here. She says, people want to believe their leaders are telling the truth. Um, and again, I just, I cannot get over how many parallels there are to our current like world yeah, politics I'm, right now. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little scary. Yeah. When they were writing this, they couldn't have known what we'd be in right now. I mean, I think this was, it should have been written before um, COVID, COVID even started. Yeah. And so like, Everything that was to come later on in that year, this year. They were wrapping up filming right in, like, the end of February, Mm -hmm. March. So they must have written this almost a year ago. But, I mean, it's still so uh, valid for what we're experiencing today. And, I mean, I guess with this specifically, um, it leads a lot into the kinds of discussions we've been having for the last, you know, four or five years, especially since Trump got elected. Um, and the idea that like people sometimes just choose to believe what the person in power is saying because it's easier and because they do want to believe that, you know, that person knows more than them because it gives them a sense of safety that, you know, someone's taking care of the problems that they don't know about. Um, And so I guess that's probably where they drew that from as well. Yeah, I think so. And also this idea of like fake news and misinformation Mm -hmm. and just allowing yourself to be misinformed because it's easier than doing the research and educating yourself. Yeah. And taking personal responsibility. 
Um, so we flash to the next scene and uh, Callie goes down to talk to Reese and her father on the um, hollow screen that they have, which do we think we're going to have those in, what is it, 30 years from now? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. But I, I don't I don't know what the, if the tech is quite there yet. We'll see. We'll see. Very Star Wars. Um, it is very Star Wars. So earlier on in the previous scene, you can see that Callie's mom is really hesitant to talk about Reese, yeah. uh, Callie's brother Reese. And if you read the script scene uh, that the writers released and then also reading some of the interviews that Jason has given about the prequel and where it will go, it's actually clear that Reese um, and Callie were kind of raised by Cadigan to fight um, and that Reese was in particular pretty abused by his father. Um, one of the scenes that Jason mentioned he'd planned that either got cut from the prequel or that will still be to come later on was that the reason Callie and her mom ultimately left Second Dawn and left Bill Cadigan behind was because Callie and Reese were sparring one day and Reese was going easy on her and Cadigan kind of butted in and it was like you let's see if you can fight me you know and and the two fought and Reese wouldn't time out and so Cadigan ended up breaking his arm um it's really nice and yeah that was like the final straw for um Grace and Callie to leave but that Reese chose to stay even because of that and so there's like that tension there where like you know that like Reese has been abused but also doesn't necessarily see it that way um and Grace can't make him see it that way and so he's like almost he's like trapped in his own (laughs) he's like trapped himself there you know totally um and it's I mean it's clear that he is a very confused and very indoctrinated young person. I mean, just from this very short interaction with Callie, like he's an ass. Yeah. I mean, his, his character definitely grates on me this entire episode. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Totally. Um, but they're definitely setting up some sort of like antagonist sibling uh, rivalry in a way that we didn't really see with Bellamy and Octavia. No. Um, Bellamy and Octavia had a very different, like almost like, parent-child relationship for most of their um, time on the show. And this is very, very much siblings whose parents kind of, you know, made them clash. Yeah, agreed. Uh, It is an immediate red flag when Cadigan comes on and says, what's wrong with fascism? Yeah, no. What's the big deal? So funny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Cadigan. What a great joke. I will say Cadigan, the beginning of this episode, isn't really much like what I pictured Cadigan to be but Cadigan toward the end of this episode is Mm. um so I really liked seeing the way that Cadigan almost like devolves into what I pictured as like canon Cadigan throughout this episode and you kind of see him beginning to believe in his own mythology totally um which is really fun yeah I think that's really cool um and I do want to say like despite the fact that this is like an extraordinary circumstance um and he is a fascist leader it's always amusing to watch a teenager rebel against their parents idea of who they should be i mean it's a, just a very classic coming of age trope mm-hmm. um which really sort of sets the stage for their relationship and gives you a bit of context for what kind of dynamic they have as a parent and a child sure and you know caddy caddy <laughs> <laughs> is that my new uh, nickname for Cadigan? yeah um Callie and Caddy. No, Callie is like, I'm sorry that I don't think like you, even though you wanted me to. And I think it's a little funny because, yes, there is some teenage rebellion there. But I think in many ways, Callie and Bill are visionaries. Yeah. Um, obviously, their visions are very different. But I think Callie 
kind of does think like him. It's just she has very different priorities than he does. You yeah, know? and and they're very similar, right? Like they're both naturally born leaders, mm-hmm. um, and stubborn, and very <laughs> good at getting people to follow them and to inspire people to follow them. Um, Bill's tactics are through fear and manipulation, and Callie's is through general, you know, knowledge and truth. But yeah. um, I do think that they have more alike than you know, then maybe he and Reese does. And that's probably why he respects Kelly so much more. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not subtle. (laughs) It's not. Um, Cadigan does say that tree crew is dedicated to solving an an unsolvable problem. And I wasn't really sure what he meant by that. And I, I mean, I guess by the idea of tree crew, it seems to me like it would be some sort of climate change thing. That's what it sounds like. But I wonder if it's just beyond that of like the unsolvable problem of like saving the world. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like he's like really given up on earth as being a habitable place Mm -hmm. and is really just dedicated to this idea of getting off planet. Um, and he, so like any, any kind of, um, movement or attempt to try and say salvage what they have here is just um a waste of time to him sure and not necessarily just him wanting to get off the planet but i think it's also just him not believing that anything in the current society is working and that he could build a better one if we could just start fresh (laughs) sure exactly um but yes uh, they get interrupted in the hollow um this woman comes up and then he gets all bill gets very serious and he says bring your mother back over here and he tells grace anaconda um and instantly she is like all business moves with military precision like she knows what this means it's a big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. Remember when we thought Anaconda was supposed to be the name of the prequel series? Yeah. And we were like, but why? <laughs> <laughs> and also, no. No. <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, I did want to take a second here and talk about what, why they chose the, the code word Anaconda for this. Um, I looked it up, and there's a lot of symbolism around an Anaconda specifically. In dreams, it often symbolizes asphyxia or a lack of something. Um, sometimes an Anaconda reflects the meaning of pressure of outer circumstances, um, pressure on somebody's body. And if you dream of an anaconda, it sometimes means that in the nearby future, be ready for big changes, both, you know, externally and internally, which I think is really, really apt for both the external forces at work here and also some of the internal changes that it affects on a personal level with a lot of these characters. Um, and we can talk about this a little bit more at the end. But I I really like this idea. And I like, I mean, Anaconda is a very threatening and very um, sort of scary code word. So like in and out of itself at face value, I think that in and of its, you know, it, you know, works as a code word for something big and scary. But I also think there's a lot of symbolism here that's really cool. Yeah, I would really love to hear uh, the writers actually discuss why they made this the code word. Um, Same. I'm not sure if it is because of this or if there are some other reasons they had, but I think it could be really cool. Or maybe that is like actually like a common code word um in military like maybe that's really what it means very much could be i don't know any military codes so (laughs) also yeah if you guys have ideas of why they picked anaconda let us know and why couldn't you just say the missiles are in the air (laughs) like it's not like bill was talking to like a huge group of people he was talking to his wife and daughter i mean i guess he was just like they have a code word for this which like encapsulates all the like pressure and yeah seriousness of the situation um so that she would truly understand like we have we've run drills on this we've prepared for this mm-hmm. this is the scenario in that's really happening 
Um, it's very military. Yeah. You know, as I have so much knowledge about that. <laughs> um, yeah. So Grace is really, again, I just find her so fascinating because, you know, she like drags Callie downstairs. They get their go bags to go and Lucy, oh, poor Lucy. She just like interrupts them and is like, what the fuck is going on? Which I don't blame her for. And then out of the blue, um, Grace drugs her and knocks her out. And tells Callie that, you know, it'll be easier for her this way. And they can't take her with them because she's not part of the second dawn. And it's just like, damn, that is ice cold. Yeah, I mean, for Grace, it is ice cold. But that's really not, that doesn't bother me at all. No, no, um, I, I mean, that's more of an interesting character yeah. trait, I would say. What really bothers me and what I'm having a hard time reconciling is the Callie who would leave her best friend to die here versus the Callie we see in the rest of the episode. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I think that they're trying to make it seem like her leaving her best friend is kind of what spurs her to become you know, what she ultimately will become. Um, but I just don't really believe it. And I I have a hard time seeing that Callie would be like, okay, well, I guess I'll just leave Lucy here. Let's go hop on the chopper. Like, just take her there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think I totally agree with you. I think they skipped over a part where she put up a bit more of a fight to her mother. If I, if I had watched her be, argue with her a little longer and then have her mom pose the dilemma to her where it's like either you stay with Lucy and I stay with you or you come with me and we both live because I do feel like her mom was forcing her to make a choice between Lucy and her mother yeah, um, I just don't believe that she couldn't have talked Lucy onto that helicopter I, agree. I really just don't believe I it. agree um and I I have to think that we probably are going to see Lucy again like we know that some people survive um, and I think it'll be really interesting if Callie is kind of forced to reconcile with that. And if like her and Lucy become like almost like antagonists, um, to each other, you know, and like, what if like Lucy is responsible for forming, um, one of the other like factions, like maybe yeah. she's joined another group and is like the leader of Asgeta yeah. exactly <laughs> or, what I was just or whatever, say, you is, know, like there are all these possibilities of, um, rival tension pre- end of world period apocalypse mm -hmm. that can then bleed over into some of the politics of the grounder culture which I think is really cool yeah and I think we know correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not 100% sure about this but um tree crew and Asgeta crew were like particular enemies like they they all had like one clan that they like really, really um had a lot of towards. yeah I um I mean I know I know Asgeta was you know antagonistic to everyone but I just I feel like I had heard somewhere in the you know way distant past of the hundred that tree crew and Asgeta crew were like yeah, the enemies. I can't remember if that's just like the way that we feel about it because like our main access point was through tree crew and so it felt a lot more personal through that lens um or if that was actually stated we'd have to go back and check that yeah um, um but yeah, I also think it's really interesting to see that Callie and her mom still have doomsday packs, uh, even after they've left the second dawn. It just really shows that especially her mother has not left behind that training. Um, but Callie herself even seems to be aware that like the doomsday packs exist. Um, sure. And so deep down, Callie too must somehow believe that it's possible that the world's going to end. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on some level they they must still believe that he's not wrong. It's just that they couldn't stomach being there with him anymore mm -hmm. until that reality took place. Um, and yeah, we'll see how quickly 
um, some of their tunes change <laughs> after they get in the bunker. I did think it was really cool to get a bird's eye view of um, Washington, D.C. as they're flying away in the helicopter and to see just like how overpopulated it is. Like it was so crowded. There were so many housing and buildings and like all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we had seen earlier on the news that the 11 billionth child was just born. And it's like, I get why it's that crowded. Like, my gosh, the world cannot sustain that many people. As, as Becca said, well, I guess it was Allie really who said way back in the day, uh, the problem on earth is that there are too many people. Yeah. We have a population problem. Yeah. So I see we it. do. <laughs> 11 billion people. It's not a lot. that I think that justifies bombing the whole earth, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think, um, setting off every nuclear missile in the world is the answer. Um, well, and what's really strange to me is that Ali's uh, goal was to decrease the surplus population, you know, to use a, <laughs> a, a Christmas carol yeah. um, uh, phrase. Uh, but she ends up essentially killing most of the world's Whereas she could have decreased the population on like a smaller scale. Like she didn't have to do, she didn't have to go this hard. You know what I mean? Maybe she felt they needed a drastic wake up in order to change their behavior. I just don't know if I believe that just because I think as a, as an AI, she'd realize like it will be really hard for really anyone to survive by me doing this. Like she could have knocked it in half. She knocked it like, I don't even know, beyond a 10th, you know? Yeah. That's so, true. That's true. But maybe Allie had a little bit more of a uh, anger <laughs> in her than she should have as an AI. Yeah. But at her creator. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, and I did just want to confirm like this missile hit the White House, right? Or that's. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it hit the believe. White House. Yeah. Um, White House is gone. Bye bye White House. Yeah. So but tragic. the Wallace administration isn't. They're apparently in Mount Weather. So <laughs> great. Yeah. So Callie and her mom get to the bunker where Callie's brother Reese is waiting for them and just in time because a missile hits outside shortly after. They find Bill studying the anomaly stone and he believes he's found the code they need to open the wormhole, but he's wrong. And while the family is discussing what to do next, Callie sneaks out and tries to open the bunker door to let more people in, helped by a new character, August, who wants to save his girlfriend outside. Unfortunately, she and August are stopped by Reese. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, I think the first thing that was interesting is, like, Callie is very upset, as she has every right to be, that she's stuck in this bunker for the rest of her life and starts to dissent audibly. And Reese is like, shh, don't say anything. Um, everyone here is, li like, he loves Bill. Like, he's their savior, blah, blah, blah. And so it's very clear um, that Callie is the only person that we know of at this moment in time um, who is, like, not overly impressed with her father she's not drinking the kool-aid she's a very free-thinking person and is not swayed to his cause at all by this like in any way um, yeah i wish we could get a bit more of a snapshot of how these people all thought about bill before two years had passed and he became the quote-unquote shepherd you know right um i mean we know that second dawn was is a cult it's a cult like let's be honest um but to what level was it a cult uh, at least at this specific level 12 bunker um, before, you know, things devolve. Yeah, population. I don't know. Um, and I'd be curious to see because all of these people are apparently very smart people. That's why they're here. Well, I think they're very, very smart people and they're loved ones. Yes. Yeah, well, yes. Like. Yes. But I'm, I'm saying like, 
and I do think that smart people are actually more inclined to join cults. Um, oh, you yes. actually hear that a lot. As history is proven. Yeah. So, but, but like, I, I just am curious to see how this all played out. Um, we do see this girl, her name is Erico. I looked her up, um, on IMDb, but she comes in with her parents and she overhears Callie say that they're going to have to spend the rest of their lives down there. And she gets upset because her parents told her it'd just be like a year or two. Um, and then we later see this girl kind of be almost Callie's like right hand woman. Um, and so I'd really, really love to see this relationship explored in the prequel and I'm curious to see more about Erico and who she is totally I, I mean we were watching this a second time and we noticed it and we were like oh my god I hope she sticks around and then she was she was in the rest of the episode and we yeah. were like yes <laughs> <laughs> yes 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 I love um we also meet August for the first time who I'm guessing is going to be the male lead of this spin-off series um it also just so happens that his poor girlfriend was left outside and did not make it into the bunker shame yeah I think August and Reese are both gonna be the male leads um but they're going to play different roles as the leads yes uh but even still I don't think either of them are as as fun as Callie is as a character I think she's really cool oh my god Um, no no contest (laughs) Reese there's just like so much baggage there that I'm like oh gosh uh I guess my question is why is August in the second dawn because it doesn't appear that he's there with his family I could be wrong um but it seems like he came here with his girlfriend uh and he is very young and he's got a guitar and I'm just like what are you doing in here it's a good question. I feel like we'll get the answer in this spinoff series. Well, sure. And and later on in the episode, we do see that August is able to kind of like hack a security pad to keep Bill and his disciples out for like a few minutes. Um, so maybe that's saying that he really has some sort of skill with computers. But I don't know, just from what I'm getting of August, he doesn't seem like the cult conformist type. So I don't really know how he became a level 12. It's but, a good question. Yeah. Very good question. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I know I keep harping on this, but I have a really hard time believing that the wife and daughter of the person who founded and built this bunker couldn't bring in one extra person, one extra person. Well, again, I mean, I think when you put it in those terms, like, of course they should be able to like get away with it and break the rules. But I think with every, like we see with a lot of abusive people, um, the kind of manipulation and control tactics that they use to enforce their will on people, you know, works in really complicated ways. And so I think asserting any kind of rebellion or, um, you know, trying to alter the rules for their benefit at this moment in time where like the apocalypse is unfolding probably would require a level of disobedience that grace is certainly not ready to do or handle um and that i think callie has been fighting against for a really long time but has ultimately been trained and conditioned from a very very young age to not do um yeah i, I disagree with you i mean no, I think it's totally with reese, fine i think with reese that's one thing and i would totally see that reese would leave his best friend who wasn't a level 12 out in the cold i don't believe it with callie I think she could have convinced her mom. Um, and I think that they could have brought her in. I just like, I just don't believe it. And they, they've done nothing in this episode to make me believe it. So. No, I think that's totally fair. And again, I, you know, I'm stretching here and I'm finding a way to justify what happened in this episode. But I agree with you. I think it's a big stretch. Um, we also meet, there's a lot of meeting introductions in this, in this scene. Uh, we meet Tristan, who, you know, he just sucks. There's, there's no suck. other word for it. Tristan, go away. <laughs> it's like Riley 4.0. It is like Riley 4.0. Um, I, like, as we talked about, too, like, we see here that the the bombs hit he, at this point. Um, the bunker is now officially closed. Uh, and 
Callie says Yogan plays Day Odin, mm-hmm. um, which we talked about earlier. Yes, I can maybe possibly, it's a stretch, but I believe that she could have created Trig and somehow introduced it to a larger population. What I don't love is that this saying, Yogan plays Day Odin, um, you know, your fight is over, is something that she's already created because it doesn't really make any sense why she would need a saying like this at this point in time absolutely and it also undercuts like the significance of this phrase and what it has come to mean to grounders mm-hmm. and the grounder culture because their life has been a fight totally and a lot of times their fight is you know all they know mm-hmm. and so you have to honor that um and it makes sense to me that this sort of phrase would naturally or organically come about through a series of generations who have known nothing else but a fight um and I just, I completely agree with you that I think that this is a, it's a shortcut. It's a cheat. Yeah. And I don't like it. Like, this is like when you go too far with the Easter eggs mm-hmm. and you're, you should reel back here. Yeah. Um, so we see that like once the intake is complete, what's really the impetus for all of this planning, all of the second dawn work, everything that Bill has been doing for the last d- decade or so has really all been about the anomaly stone, which he stole there's no other word for it. He stole it from a cultural um, heritage site in Machu Picchu. I, it's true. I, but I think that, I mean, yes, he did technically steal it. I think it's interesting to weigh if it is quite, if it holds quite the same weight as if you steal a cultural artifact versus if you steal an alien artifact. I mean, I don't know if I believe that any artifacts on this planet right now are alien. So, like, if this happened in the real world, I'd be like, yeah, you just stole a cultural well, artifact from these people. I'm, but... <laughs> well, I guess I'm wondering is, like, if if the, the ancient civilizations at Machu Picchu had, like, discovered this stone and had incorporated it into their culture and were worshipping it, and then he found it and stole it. Sure. That still feels like he's stealing a cultural artifact. I don't want to, like... I don't agree with him, but him being like, you can't steal something that belongs to all of us. If this is the case that whoever created the anomaly stone gifted it to humans, then I like see where he's going. I still think he's wrong. Yeah, but, he's like, very I, wrong. But I, 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 I think that there is a distinction there if the anomaly stone really was gifted to humans by aliens versus like if this really is just a human artifact that they thought had, you know, significance. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, but I do think ultimately the purpose of putting this in here specifically is pointing to the idea that he is very much entitled. Oh, for sure, um, yeah. And that's kind of like the what this is functioning for, yeah. and so I think it's important to talk about it. Um, I wanted to talk, so last night I was just trying, because we, okay, so we know that there are all of these um, myths and legends kind of surrounding Machu Picchu. Um, and also, like, the idea of Machu Picchu being a site where aliens have visited is, like, also represented in lots of media. Exactly. In lots of various forms, not to mention the last Indiana Jones movie, which, like, let's not even go there. So I looked up Machu Picchu portal <laughs> in Google. <laughs> really, and really advanced. Like, Google literally search. the first thing that came up, I was like, Holy shit. So I'm going to read to you from this article um, because I really I can't. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I I have to believe this is where they got some of the anomaly stone um, legend from, or at least where they kind of drew from as they were creating this. But it said that there was a disc of pure gold in the Temple of the Sun, Machu Picchu, that was actually the key to the Gate of the Gods. Uh, the first Incan priest king 
Aramu Maru took the golden disc to a site of an ancient spiritual city in which the inhabitants could commune with the gods. According to the Incan legend, Aramu Maru headed out to the sacred city that archaeologists have not discovered, which supposedly exists near Lake Titicaca. He approached a giant doorway cut into an artificially flattened mountainside. In the center of the stone indentation was a hollow into which he placed the sun disk. When he did so, the stone door shimmered and became bright. Eremu stepped, stepped through the portal and thereafter returned the stone. He was never seen again, and the door never changed again. And the solar disk was allegedly returned to uh, Cusco, where the Spaniards later likely looted it along with the temple's other golden objects. So... I mean, it doesn't fit exactly what the anomaly stone, you know, looks like in the show, but or, I like or functions as yeah or functions. Um, but I like this idea that the show is proposing that like that myth has obviously changed over the years, and maybe like the the heart of this myth was actually the anomaly stone and the you know ancient rulers using the anomaly stone to um, go to other worlds. Yeah, I love this. I think it's super cool. So yeah, yeah, loved it. I I mean. I would like a little bit more if the show would kind of, if the show would have talked about this just, a, you know, a little bit. Like if, if, if Cadigan had explained like that's why he was searching for the anomaly stone or like, you know, like did he just stumble upon the anomaly stone? Yeah, I, guess, did he I mean it? like we know he was a venture capitalist, so he had boatloads of cash just lying around. And I guess, you know, he's a pretty eccentric dude. We know that all, there are a lot of really eccentric millionaires and, you know, multi-millionaires who just go out and do these like crazy expeditions because they feel like they can um and so I'm not that surprised that he did something no like this. I'm not surprised I just wish that the show had kind of tied it all together by kind of explaining to us why he went searching for this specific thing and why he's become so obsessed with it no I I totally agree with you I feel like this is gonna come up in the spinoff series it might, but you know, Cadigan's not going to be in the spinoff series. I mean, I don't think he is. I'm pretty sure he's not. True, but um, I feel like it might have something like Callie's childhood or something. I don't know. We'll perhaps. see. Perhaps. Uh, and we see here Bill tries to input some code that he finds um, in a cave in Machu Picchu mm -hmm. uh, into the Anomaly Stone, and nothing happens. And my question is then, the code that he enters, what is it for? We don't know. I, I mean, like, is it is it just kind of a... A throwaway thing or is that really a code for something and if it is I have to believe that he would have tried it at this point you know what I mean because Becca kind of activates the anomaly stone later on so I would have tried the code again <laughs> see what it is yeah I don't know I, don't know. I can't help you with this. <laughs> okay <laughs> um so Callie they so they go through this like whole discussion and they talk about the intake and how many people are there Reese reveals that um they actually only took in 92% of all the level 12s. And Callie, rightfully so, is disgusted that there is 8% um, of room left for a population that they could have filled with people, um, which means that Lucy died for nothing. And also disgusted that no one else in this room seems to care about that. Yeah. At all. Like, it doesn't phase them. They don't care that they could have saved, I don't know, another 50 people or so. Who knows? Instead, they're like, oh, great. We have more, 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 yeah, more uh, goods, <laughs> foodstuffs for us. We'll just scroll those ex away. Extra Thanksgiving. Um, and I don't blame her. I'm also disgusted with them. I want to rewind a second back to me saying the whole thing about the um, alien artifact versus a cultural artifact. And I want to clarify before I get like angry emails about like me supporting colonization, which I don't, um, is that I think what I'm trying to say is like if the aliens gifted 
this stone to a human and like technically it does belong to everyone but why should bill be the one to have it all to himself like i think there's like the argument maybe that he's like stolen it away from humanity yeah, she, because he, he's keeping it exactly to he's hoarding it yeah it, absolutely and i think that's a good clarification i didn't need it to be clarified but i know you better than anyone so i just also <laughs> wanted to say for the record that i wasn't calling you a colonizer. no 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 i know i, I, I was like colonizer. feeling like i was sounding like a colonizer no, no. and i feel like i had to like yeah, you know no. backtrack a little bit let's just for the purposes of this podcast assume that neither of us support colonialism in any way shape or form um and that like is a thing um I do I am I didn't even put this in the notes but I really am curious to see if the show changes the way that it discussed um discusses culture and discusses race because I think the hundreds definitely made some missteps there in the past um yes and again like I think this prequel is the chance to start new and do something different and I love that they've cast a biracial woman yeah I was just gonna say that a black man um and that's really great. And I just, I just hope that those kind of conversations continue and that the show veers in a better direction than perhaps it was going in for a lot of the hundred. Yeah. I think that the fact that they've cast, I mean, he is black, but, um, he's supposed to be biracial. In sure. The um, I mean, I guess I, I can't, I don't, don't I don't actually sure. know the background of either of those two actors. So yeah, they both could be biracial in show. They are meant to be yeah. biracial. Um, and I think that is in itself, progressive um mm. or at least a step in the right direction even just from the casting of a very diverse show in and of itself which was the hundred back seven years ago um making headway in that direction and mm. in that space um whether or not they did that the whole time and they handled it correctly the whole time <laughs> is a totally different matter which we won't get into right nope, at this exact let's moment not, let's not talk about that um I do want to say it doesn't make any sense to me that they're calling themselves level 12 because everything that we learned back in season four was that this bunker was like for level 13s. It was like the secret 13th level. Yeah. Um, and that people who were level quote unquote 12s got to go into a bunker, but that was like a fake bunker and they died there. Um, and so I, I don't really know now what this is supposed to mean about the level 12s who died in that other bunker. Like, was Cadigan just using like a certain sect of the level 12s for like money, um, which is, you know, really, really dark uh, when you think about it, that he like created this fake bunker where they were going to die in. That's um, terrifying. And like, if, if not, if there's some other explanation, I'd like to hear it because I don't want to think this is just a mistake that the show makes, like that not calling them level 13s. Yeah. It feels like a misstep, but I also am like, usually they don't make a big mistake like this. It feels like a really big mistake. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know either, but, um, it was a good thing to point out though, is that this kind of is, I mean, it was gross either way that there was a fake bunker. No, it's disgusting. But... <laughs> Everything Bill does is disgusting. Yeah. Um, so Callie finds herself, she flees, uh, and decides that they have 8% more capacity and they better fill it. Um, and so she runs to the airlock um, and finds herself face-to-face with August, um, who is also trying to get out and save his girlfriend, Jeannie. But, like, boy, she dead. Um, but but is she? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the two become instant allies, uh, whether or not there is room for a ship or a romance or just platonic friendship in its actual platonic form. We don't know, um, but we do get a delightful, gratuitous shot of August 
22 pack as he lifts his shirt in what can only be described as a Bellamy season one move. Oh, it was Bellamy season one. Yeah, it definitely was a Bellamy season I one move. Watched, I saw that and I was like, I see you. I see you. <laughs> if you don't think I've cataloged every single time Bellamy has done anything with his body, you are wrong. I have. <laughs> well, first off, I really am questioning, like, will Janie survive? Will we have some tension there that, you know, he you know, to sh- that she thinks he left her to be- save himself. Yeah, that's um, a good question. And, you know, if not, you know, I-, I really don't know where that would go. But I am curious to explore what kind of relationship Callie and August are going to have. Because, I mean, it does seem in a normal show like this, it seems like they're setting them up to be love interests. Totally. Um, with the 100, I'm never quite sure. I, yeah, again, have they, a hard time believing that Callie won't be um, queer in some way. Um, so maybe her and August will actually be platonic best friends. Maybe this is the show trying to redo what they thought they were trying to do with Bellark, but failed deeply. <laughs> deeply failed because they're their two male main leads actually fell in love with each other. Yeah. Did um, it work? <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like the way that August is kind of like her backup in this episode. Um, and he seems very impressed by her as we all should be. Yes. Everyone so, should be. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that Reese is saying here that whoever is above the door isn't level 12s because we actually see when the bomb hits that some of the level 12s didn't even make it in. Like they closed the bunker um, when the bombs were incoming. Yeah. Um, and so it's very possible that some out there is a level 12 well he says that we know they're not level 12s because they would have had a key to open the door oh the key opens the door i see that makes a lot more sense and so everyone who's on the other side they're banging to be let in but they can't get in because they don't have a level 12 key well what if the key was blown off in the explosion you don't know their lives reese obviously (laughs) they're not worthy of being a level 12 and he's still a dick oh reese Reese, my buddy. I mean, he's he's just a sheep. He has no ability to think for himself, and his apathy for other human beings is clear. I just, like, there's so much work to be done with this character. I find him very loathsome. Um, I, I almost like almost like a cartoon villain at this point. Yeah, Jason has mentioned um, that he's setting up this sibling relationship as like a Cain and Abel, um, you know, like the golden child, and then the child who's kind of cursed and like, set out into the world to think about what he's done um and i i have to you know believe that that's going to be the kind of journey that he's going to go on um is like started from the bottom and like has to like climb by doing good deeds um for me i do have a level of sympathy for reese i know that he was abused as a child and i'm sure that a lot of um the way that he is now is because of his upbringing but at the same time there has to come a point in your life where you don't get to blame your childhood for your actions when you're an adult your actions are your own no matter you know where they were founded in childhood you are still actively making these choices and he's making bad choices absolutely i mean you are 100 percent responsible for the choices that you make and the consequences of those choices Mm -hmm. who you want to blame is entirely up to you but you don't get to escape the the consequences of those actions and they still weigh on you exactly i see where it, he's right. coming from i see why he's this way still doesn't make it right. okay no cool motive still murder yeah <laughs> so it's been two years and a group of kids are out scavenging when they see becca's podland. they take her inside where callie sees becca give the night blood serum to a boy who was exposed to radiation then we discovered that becca can hear the anomaly stone she pushes a code into the stone and the wormhole appears Bill shoots down Becca's offer to give the Second Dawn members night blood. He wants to be the savior, and he plans on leading his people through the wormhole. It's just a stand-up guy. He really is all around. Bill, my Bill. 
Um, so first off, August doesn't appear to be on the team that Callie's on. And I kind of wonder if Callie's sort of um, the intermediary between what could be like August and his faction of people who don't agree with Cadigan and who want out of the bunker mm-hmm. um, versus like the, the disciples who are like really, have, you know, drank Cadigan's Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, and well, uh, th- this group of people specifically seems to be like the disciples. <laughs> totally. And I think she has the privilege of mediating between both groups because she herself is a Cadigan. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Like she is afforded a lot more liberties and therefore is allowed to interface with these different rebellions yeah rebellion uh, rebels is the word i'm looking for and also maintain her relationship status with the disciple mm-hmm. purists um which i think is really interesting yeah and we also see that kelly has been spending a lot of time uh with the people in the mental health ward which is apparently very full because as kelly tells cadigan later on there were what was it 20 suicides in the last six months yeah and, and twice as many attempts yeah Um, That's huge. Which is a lot. Obviously, it's a lot. You have the last, what you think is the last surviving population of the human race in this tiny, 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 tiny bunker, and you're losing 20 people a month? No, six months. Six months. But still. But but still. still, Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it's really dark. And it, it, again, just is a little way that the show can show Caddy's, uh, Caddy, (laughs) can show Callie's, um, empathy for yeah. people um and she's you know always trying to take care of others in a lot of ways like clark very I mean, much i think like callie clark. has a lot of clark in her but she's you know not quite as clark um as clark <laughs> <laughs> i mean who is no one is as clark as clark but i think what's great about callie is that she has a lot of our heroes in the hundreds best qualities kind of all combined into one yeah she definitely feels i was going to talk about this a little later but i think it's good to talk about it now is that she very much feels like a combination of like clark and raven and bellamy and bellamy and amori (laughs) um she's just she's so awesome yeah um, so I'm going to ask this question and I'm not asking it ironically because I genuinely, even though I podcast for, for this show, I genuinely did not remember this. And I'm betting that some of you didn't remember this either. So I was curious why Becca chose to come down from her space station now, two years after the apocalypse. And the answer is <laughs> when, when she typed this into the show notes, I was like, what do you mean? We like literally got that answered three or four or five years ago. How can you not remember that? I was like, I don't remember this. Uh, no, in season three, um, the episode where we really focus on, it's actually the episode that Lexa dies too, uh, that mm. we also focus on um, would be Becca's why. backstory and her, you know, creating Alley 2 slash the flame. And so what ends up happening is she's on her space station, Polaris. She's creating this flame too. Um, and her crew and lab team kind of find out what she's doing. Um, and they get angry because obviously she created Ali, who's responsible for destroying the world. And they're like, you're trying to do it again. Um, and they try to destroy Ali too. And so what she ends up doing is she locks the crew in the airlock, um, puts the flame in herself, takes all the night blood serum, and goes down to earth and kind of leaves her crew to be blown up because they weren't, you know, able to respond to the merging because they were locked away. Um, so yes, her crew gets blown up. She goes down to earth with the flame in her and with the serum. And she's like hoping to start spreading the the good word of Alley too, you know? <laughs> that is an excellent refresher. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> 
so now we know too why Becca managed to land right where second Dawn was. I always thought it was because she knew Bill. Um, and I am a little sad to find out that that's <laughs> not the case because I really built up a whole like a whole like a house of cards around that theory. Um, but we know that apparently Cadigan had friends on people in the space stations. And so I'm sure that somehow that's how Becca found out where Second Dawn was. And that that bunker would be full of like a thousand people at least. Um, and that's why she chose to land where she did. Makes perfect sense now. And it all lines up very beautifully. <laughs> um, I love that Callie immediately recognizes Becca. Um, and then proceeds to fangirl over her all the way through the bunker on their way to meet Cadigan. It was a very cute, it's a, just a very cute, um, a very cute meet cute, if you will. Sure. I mean, I think everything from this scene, as you just said, um, I really like how they've matched it up with that ending scene from season three. You know, when Becca lands um, in season three, we kind of get a shot of her looking out at this desolate wasteland and she sees like a line of people in hazmat suits in the distance. And she's like, I'm here to help. Um, and I always thought it was weird that like the people were just chilling there yeah. and saw her land. Uh, but I like now that we're kind of seeing things from the other side, uh, we get the other part of the story and now it's all really coming together. Um, and I also love that they recognized Callie or they recognized Becca, as you said, because yeah. Callie is a fan of her. It's like Becca got real lucky here. Real lucky. Really lucky. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, you could say the human race got lucky that's true. they had Kelly. That's I mean, true. that's why she's the hero and the main character. Yeah. Because she's awesome. Um, so Becca asks a really good question, where the hell is everyone? And we learn that Cadigan has forced everyone in the bunker to be on lockdown so that no one will see or discover Becca, which again is definitely not something that a super culty guy would do at all. We're not a cult. What? We're a collective. <laughs> um, it's totally fine. And um, right as Tristan starts to seize, Becca immediately saves him by injecting the serum into him and turning him into a nightblood. And then we learn here... Um, that Callie is now definitively suspicious of her and afraid of what her brother can do um, and warns Becca not to share the information about the serum with him and all already is forming an alliance with Becca. Yeah, I mean, my first thought in this scene was like, couldn't we just like let Tristan die? But I'm having another thought and I'm starting to wonder if he's going to be like the prequels Murphy. I don't think he's no offense to this actor I haven't seen enough of him yet I don't think he's quite as enigmatic as Richard Harmon is who um, is exa well exactly who is uh but he could surprise me and you know we could see a really interesting turn for Tristan yeah as well so Tristan has that Bellamy season one episode one hair that's like very grease back mm -hmm. slicked back and also very Murphy hair too he needs to be rained on a little we, bit we need to dirty him yeah. up <laughs> I think I will be much more sympathetic to him when the grease is gone so we'll see um, so we find out that the flame allows Becca to hear the anomaly on frequencies that the human ear can't. And that paired with Becca's own intelligence, uh, allows her to be able to figure out how to open the anomaly. Um, like as, as soon as she gets into the room with Bill and them, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And also, you know, we lost no time here. I think one of the things that it was very jarring for me was like, oh my God, okay, Becca's here. Oh my God, okay, we have to hide the night serum. Oh my God, Becca can hear the stone. Oh my God, she's opening the stone. Oh my God, there's the bridge. Oh my God, it's like one, two, three, four, five. 
And I, I love too that the last symbol that she pushes to open the anomaly is the infinity symbol, which is Becca's symbol. Yeah. And you see her like smile a little bit when she does it. It's so cute. I'm so glad you pointed this out to me because I totally missed it and I think it's amazing. <laughs> um, I love that Bill has been working on this stupid stone for 12 years and Becca just like waltzes in and solves <laughs> it in four seconds. Like what a power move. I mean, literally everything Becca does is a power move. As um, Gabriel said, he had such a crush on her as do we all we all have a crush on becca. oh my god like I'm... honestly though in this episode my crush on becca flared 10 times you know? i don't know i've like had a crush on becca for no no no. i have too but like we never have really got to see her just be chill and be real yeah. and we got to see a couple of those scenes in this episode which was great and i was like oh my god you're so cool <laughs> totally um we can tell that Bill is a villain with a capital V because he got rid of their dog. And it's just like obvious. It's a slam dunk. This yeah. is a bad guy. It's not okay. Not okay. It's not okay. Um, Even before we got our own dog, this still would not have been okay with me. No, you just don't get rid of your you dog. You don't ever you get rid of your dog. have to figure out a way to make it work. It's like you adopt a child, you keep the child. You adopt a dog, you keep the dog. That's all. I mean, that's all I can say. Like, get rid of the fucking stone. It's like... The only thing I can, like, the only thing that would justify getting rid of a dog is if the dog was, like, violent towards your children or something. I can see that you maybe not want to have the dog there. But because the dog whined too much, really, Bill? She was suffering, I say, with sarcasm in my face. Well, no, he he was saying, like, oh, she was suffering. That's why she was whining too much. He wasn't saying he he got rid of them because she was suffering. Yes, he did. That's what he said. No, no, yeah, but no, he's, what, he is realizing, like, oh, she was whining because she was suffering, not just because she was being a drama queen or whatever. I don't know about that. I do. Okay. Yeah, go back and rewatch that scene. Like, he's being like, oh, she was suffering. That's what it was. Man, that sucks. <laughs> Ew, I hate him more now. Yeah, he's he's the worst. <laughs> um. Yeah, so we see here Bill is very upset. Um, and he's very jealous by the fact that Becca has figured this out in four seconds flat, where he couldn't. Um, but he hides it well in the interest of learning more about the stone at first. You know, I think he really curbs his outward anger and frustration um, as much as he can. And embarrassment. And embarrassment. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's a really good point. Um so that he can milk Becca's trove of knowledge um, and expertise until she's no longer useful. Yeah. Uh, I did wonder, so Becca mentions that the Anomaly Stone has 744 symbols, which I think she just seems to know off the top of her head, which was interesting. I mean, like, obviously it's because of the flame. Yes. But I'm still, like, learning more and more about the flame's capabilities, especially in the way that they were initially intended before the flame supposedly degraded over time. Yeah. Uh, And the number of 744, I wondered if it had any sort of meaning, and I looked it up, uh, and apparently as an angel number, and to be... To clarify what that is, an angel number is, like, a particular number that you keep seeing over and over again. Mm. Um, it's a very, like, spiritual term. Um, but it, it apparently, the number 744 means a spiritual awakening. You are entering a period of your life where you want to know your true purpose. The 744 meaning symbolizes the need to elevate your existence. Your guardian angels are guiding you as you explore this new path. The thing you most desire is now within your grasp. It's so cool. Yeah. It's so, so awesome. <laughs> Awesome, the way that they work those kinds of Easter eggs in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if this is like what they did. If they looked up like what number does you know what means spiritual awakenings and you know like I, I don't know. But... Sure, they did. 
I'm sure they did. I have to believe it's not just a coincidence. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Um, so Bill, so Becca's like, yes, yes, this anomaly stone's really cool and all, but I have this like magic serum that will cure all of our people or your people and help them live above a, a happy and fulfilled life above ground. Um, so we should use it. And Bill is like, ha, no. Walls. Um, that's cute. <laughs> and I think that the way he just immediately brushes this off, does not even give it a second thought, um, really speaks volumes about what his actual priorities are and what kind of leader he is. You know, he doesn't care about his people's well-being at all. He truly just wants to be the one to save them and to be their their spiritual guide their their savior their shepherd whatever the term you want to use it's it's all about his ego um and he doesn't care about saving them or helping them at all yeah and it's gross uh, yeah and i i think if i had to question i mean i uh, grace does say earlier that he's a um, narcissist with sociopathic tendencies yeah but i again i really think that this has grown very deeply like i think he started out with kind of a pure goal even if you know he was doing the right thing for the wrong reasons yes um but just again as he spent more time in the bunker and as people have been looking up to him as a leader he started to really like drink his own kool-aid becoming his own you know becoming the cult leader he was always but now is in his mind as well yeah he's Um, really like fashioned himself after himself yeah and it's like (laughs) it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah badness you know he says that he is sure he says it. He is sure. I've never been more sure um, than anything in my life. <laughs> that going through the stone is the only way forward for, quote unquote, his people. And it's like, damn, if only we all could have the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> they fail up. You know, it must be nice. <laughs> he got to like Bardo and they're in this like high tech area where he gets to be in cryo for a thousand years. Yeah, like he fails up. <laughs> He's a white man. They yeah. only fail up. I'm just I'm, so, I'm sorry if that's offensive to anybody, but I don't care. Um, so I, I mean, I think our listenership probably hopefully has been doing their own research about white privilege and not just white men, but especially white men. Um, I hope you're not mad by that because it's true. (laughs) Specifically the, the position in society that white cis men hold Mm -hmm. and the privileges that they, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Just to clarify, um, not all white men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hashtag not all men, <laughs> not all men. Oh, okay man. I digress um so again I ask what is the deal with Grace she is so complicated and confusing to me um she is so practical and scientific we know she is like a highly highly educated um woman of science um but she also like genuinely feels like her husband is like their lord and savior um, and like that he's like brought them this far and is like proven that he's like, you know, his fantasy is real. Um, and I'm just like confused, I guess, by Grace. I mean, I don't think that she thinks he's their Lord and savior. I do think that she trusts in his intellect and in his instincts. Um, and he's proven over and over again, right to an extent, um, I mean, for me, I obviously am totally on Becca and Callie's side here. I am. But that said, I, like, am definitely a grace in that, like, I want to walk through the portal, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's not that I 
disqualify that she wants to walk through the portal. I totally get that. That makes sense to me. It's that tracks. I guess it's more of just like some of the words that she uses and like employees seems like she's drinking the Kool-Aid a little. I mean, I think she's just in this, in this specific situation being like, oh damn, he was right. There is a portal to another world. You know, the world did end and now we have another portal to take us somewhere else. Like, like maybe this is what was meant again, to be. Again, he's um, accidentally failing up. I, I wouldn't want to go to another planet with like a cult, especially a cult led by my abusive husband. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I'm not going through that portal. I know you're not going I'm through that not portal. I'm going through that portal. I probably, if it was like, if see, <laughs> I was like, first off, I wouldn't have left you there while my mom and I went off the second Dom bunker. Wait, why am I Lucy? <laughs> I'm just saying like in this thought process scenario. Okay. But like if you and I had both made it into the bunker, I would not leave you and go to another planet, especially with Bill. I would definitely be Team Callie. For sure. But I would like deep down really, really, really want to go through the portal. <laughs> That's fair. I'm still not going through the portal. I know. And, and I'm not going to go. And I'm not going through the portal just because you want to go either. So I'm sorry. You're a better friend than me. No, I think it's different. I think going into the portal is taking a huge risk, um, which may or may not pay off. And you could very well die or be torn apart. Yeah, I'm not going into the portal. Yeah, I, I, I get why you would not want to go into the portal. <laughs> I hate it. Theoretically, though, like posing this question, if you knew that the portal went to this like lush green planet that was like really beautiful and wonderful, would you go to it or would you not because it was an alien planet? No, of course I would. Okay, if there I was, was just... like a 100% guarantee of safety, that's like saying like if you knew that on the other end of your plane ride, would Hawaii, would you get on the plane? Yes! <laughs> I was just, I wasn't sure if you were um just not wanting to go to any planet at all because it's not earth and you don't care you don't well no it's not that you don't care but you just like don't want to be anywhere else but earth no, or no. if it was just like no it's, you want to be safe it's the safety okay factor. Gotcha, totally gotcha. yeah if hawaii is on the other side of that i'm going <laughs> <laughs> So later, Callie finds Becca alone with the Anomaly Stone. She reveals to Becca that she knows Becca has an AI implant, and she asks Becca to distract her father while she gives the Second Dawn people Nightblood in secret. Suddenly, Becca has an epiphany and punches a new code into the Anomaly Stone. The stone bursts into a white light, which sucks Becca in, only to spit her out a little later when Bill comes back. Becca is terrified by what she saw in the white light and wants to shut the stone down, but Bill won't allow it and has Reese lock Becca up. Yeah, again, lots of lots of stuff going on yeah. here. Um, so first off, we see Callie visit Tristan in the medical ward when she goes to drop off all the gifts for the kids and discovers firsthand that Tristan is completely healed from his radiation poisoning, which I think, you know, was the final straw um, to solidify her complete and utter faith in Becca. Absolutely. You know, like she she saw it for herself. There's now no doubt in her mind that Becca is everything that she thought she could be. Also, I want Nightblood. I know. <laughs> I think it would be so cool. <laughs> I'm, like, really jealous of Tristan here. <laughs> I'm, like, I want Nightblood if it means that I can survive radiation sure. poisoning, but I don't, like, need Nightblood. I don't need it. I just want it. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> um, so we, we open up on this scene with Becca, and she's alone, and she's writing in her notebook, and it's fun to see Becca's notebook make another appearance because, you know, we've – We've seen it in the past, um, and we know at this point in time that Raven actually has Becca's notebook, and I'm still, you know, even more fully on this uh, theory that I have that we're going to have to rebuild the flame somehow, mm-hmm. um, and I just, I really think Becca, or that Raven's going to be the one to do it using Becca's research, um, and that would be so cool. Well, 
No, it would be cool. It would be freaking cool. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it would be really cool. And, the, and again, like the parallels between Becca and Raven are, you know, yeah. super, superfluous. And it would just, it would just yeah. kind the of. The show keeps calling it out. Connect over those over. dots perfectly. And I'm, I'm saying it would be cool to see Raven build the flame. At the same time, like the flame comes with so much baggage. Yeah. But I still want it to happen. Yeah. So. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Becca closed the portal um, because she thought, quote unquote, Bill might throw her in it, <laughs> which I just thought was hilarious. I also love that Becca has a great sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. Um, which then leads into this exchange between Callie and Becca, which is just awesome. Like, I love this so much. It is so fun to watch these two intelligent women of color work together, solving a problem and learning from each other. It was just ultra satisfying yeah what I thought was so great and what Becca really loved too was that Callie is extremely smart and she was able to figure out essentially like everything Becca has done yeah on her own with like just like a tiny bit of prompting Becca yeah. was like okay so then what's not there like, well no that that was even later but I'm saying here like she just saw um the scar, the scar. on Becca's neck um and has like you know, the night blood serum and how she's able to resist radiation. And she's kind of like pieced all of this together. Yeah. Um, how am I doing so far? That's really, exactly. It's, it's just really great. More and Becca, than adequate. Becca loved it. Yeah. She's like, this girl and me are going to get along. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, you know, I think Becca spent most of her life talking to people who are so far inferior to her intellect that it must be so refreshing to speak to somebody who is at least almost or if not at her level sure I mean to be fair I think Becca probably was surrounded by very smart people nor do I think that Callie's at Becca's level no no I, I don't either but, but but it is it is I think she recognizes a bit of herself in Callie totally which is sweet totally um we also learn here and I'm pretty sure we didn't know this before but that the the flame name actually comes from um the idea of Prometheus giving fire to mortals um and that was just a really fun like little like a little Bellamy fact there yeah, a little you know nugget. yeah like a little Greek myth Bellamy would love that Octavia would love that um and I loved it yeah so. <laughs> we're nerds we love it yeah. it's great um, Becca also mentions that the AI or Ali 2 as we know it is her penance um, but doesn't expand on it and we know that she's alluding to the fact that Ali 1 is the reason the missiles were launched in the first place and that Becca is responsible for the end of the world. I wonder if Callie is going to learn that. I mean, at some point, either through taking the flame herself or, you know, someone else taking the flame and telling her um, and how that's going to kind of change or... Um, influence her opinions on Becca yeah no it's a really good question and I feel like that discovery is waiting for us yeah in yeah. the prequel <laughs> uh so the symbols that open the white vortex are the seven symbols that have no frequency at all and I'm not really sure what to make of that um and why that would be the case but I just wanted to note that for the future because yeah. I think it's pretty clear that we're at some point going to have to refine this code and put it in and explore whatever is happening in this swirling vortex of doom. You yeah, know? <laughs> I mean, I think it's also suggests that it has something to do with time travel. You think? I do. I think she went into a future where she was seeing a judgment day that has not happened yet. I um, think it's possible that this is like some sort of fourth dimension um, you know thing a fourth dimension access point mm -hmm. um I still I will be I mean I'm of two minds I'll be irritated if we do do time travel just because 
Jason has said Jason said so many many times, times, we're not doing time travel. But at the same time, I love time travel, so I would love to do time travel. I think it's also equally possible that that Becca was just allowed to kind of see the heart of whatever entity um, is powering the Anomaly Stone Mm. or gifted the Anomaly Stone and what, like, their ultimate goal would be for the humans who figured out how to use it. Yeah, that's interesting. I just think it's, like, I feel like the symbols are, are, like, operating at a different frequency that are specifically linked to, like, location references that exist in this dimension. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these seven symbols are not frequent like they have no frequency maybe suggests that they're for a different dimension well and what's interesting by the idea of frequencies is theoretically if there are parallel universes it's likely that they all run on different frequencies yeah so actually the idea of these seven symbols having no frequency almost suggests that it's like a space in between the universes yeah um we'll see i mean i'm sure that this is going to come into play later this season Uh, And I can't wait to find out how. (laughs) Yeah. And I also just think it's really interesting that, like, you know, as much as Becca cautioned Bill earlier in the episode, you know, do the science, exercise caution. She is a huge nerd at heart, you know, and she she can't help but touch it and then enter this unknown entity, you know. Yeah, I think I would touch it. I know. (laughs) I would not touch it. I'm I'm Callie. I'm like, absolutely not. Um, we see Becca come out of the vortex, like kneeling and almost in a praying stance. Oh yeah. She's definitely praying. Like praying or like begging for forgiveness almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so first off, I do wonder how long she was gone. If this like was something that happened and just like the blink of an eye or if she's been in whatever this is for a while, I don't know. Um, but she is convinced that she saw Judgment Day in the Vortex. Mm-hmm. And she says that we're not ready, and especially Bill isn't ready. And the way that she phrases that, like, we're not ready, it makes me wonder if, as Jason keeps saying, we haven't yet learned the ultimate moral of the story and that, like, all of this, all of these seasons are supposed to have an ultimate meaning. Um, so I wonder if the direction for this final season is that throughout the last seven seasons plus, like, hundreds of years uh, since this moment with Becca and Bill, humans have been just like put through so many trials and are forced to like learn over and over again um, how to be a functioning society and how to be good people. And that ultimately uh, we're going to face some sort of judgment that kind of decides if humans are worthy of our continued existence. And Becca knows like at this point in time in the bunker, we're not. (laughs) And so maybe that's like what our heroes have been working toward all of this time. Like I have to wonder, like perhaps Clark um, and maybe some of her friends too, will choose to like go into this anomaly vortex and kind of offer themselves up for judgment and kind of face you know, whatever is inside this thing. And I mean, I would assume we're ultimately going to come out on the other end being judged kindly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd be shocked if we weren't. (laughs) Um, But I I would really love to see that. And I would especially love to see Clark doing that. Um, Is there going to be some lever in this, like, white swirling (laughs) vortex of doom? Where is the lever? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think that's super interesting. I'm having a hard time committing to anything at this point because I do still feel very much like most of this season has been all set up. And so I have yeah. no I have no frame of reference or any clue as to where we are going. But I like this idea. I think it's really cool. Yeah, the one thing that is still hitting on me is 
are our heroes ready to be judged? <laughs> no. I, I, they do. Are, they're definitely trying to be better. But we still keep seeing the same things happen over, over and over and again. Over. Right. And I kind of don't think humans can rise above their differences. Right. Exactly. I just don't think it's, like, in us. Um but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, obviously, I don't think the show is going to decide that, like, humans don't deserve to exist and just wipe us all out, even though maybe it should. <laughs> um, would be very dark. But we know that, you know, whatever Becca saw uh, in this is, in her mind, worse than, like, the actual apocalypse that just occurred that destroyed all of Earth. That so, she was responsible that for. That she was responsible for. So given this, I'm like, oh, damn. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Judgment what Day like. sounds real rough. It sounds really bad. <laughs> it sounds really bad. Um, but I am curious if, if Becca was so scarred by what she saw, why wouldn't she want to show it to Bill? To say, like, this is what will happen if we, you know, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, well, I guess... I mean, it's a total shot in the dark here, but I'm sh- I'm guessing that it has something to do with the subjugation, the further subjugation of the human race at the for the um, purposes of some kind of like for the benefit of like leaders mm-hmm. like Cadigan that he would benefit from the subjugation of humans in some capacity, and that that kind of power um, and suffering at his hands is not something that he could, you know, is not, he's not morally able to wield. Yeah. I mean, I, and again, this is just shot in the dark for me, but it seems to me that what Becca saw was so terrible um, and so frightening to her that I have a hard time believing they'll be like, oh, that's chill. The only thing I can think of is maybe Becca went in and whatever is inside the anomaly, be it like an entity or whatnot, um, kind of showed her the atrocities mankind has committed and was like, are you prepared to be judged right now? And she was like, no, we're not. But maybe Bill would go in and be like, yeah, you can judge me. And then like, they'd be like, well, you suck. So by humans, you know, maybe that's why she was like afraid to show him what was in there. Maybe, maybe I, it's like a choice, like to face judgment day. Maybe and if you choose incorrectly, it can screw everything up. Maybe I have no idea. Um, so Callie tries one more time to plead with her father to use Becca's serum, um, to help this world. But again, he reinforces that, you know, he believes only in himself and he wants to be the one to save everyone. And it's like a true God complex at work here. Oh yeah. Um, it's terrifying. And he is so dismissive of her. You know, he just basically shouts at her, like, get out. Um, he's so, so annoyed that she has decided to side with Becca um and then she takes him at his word skedaddles mm-hmm. and then just like very gently yeah, picks like, up oh, just take the suitcase <laughs> and just like tiptoes right out of there yeah. without bill noticing like whoops yeah so becca's been locked up for five days when callie's finally able to get to her apparently reese found becca's notebook and knows about the flame and becca realizes that means they're going to kill her becca reveals the secrets of the flame to callie and entrusts callie with the flame upon her death then Becca's taken outside and burnt at the stake again with the burning at the stake. It's <laughs> just a thing. Um, so first off, we do see here that Tristan, when he comes in to see Becca and give her water, does have like some very low level of softness here to Becca for saving his life. Definitely. Like he's like in the process of being like, I really do appreciate what you did. Yeah. When um, Callie comes in and you know stabs him with the needle. Totally. It, there is some 
sympathy in he has some humanity very here. slight levels because I don't think he would have like changed his actions in any way because of it but yeah, no but he just <laughs> maybe feels a little bad about yeah. it yeah but you know what there's a start um my question is how Reese even found the notebook because it was hidden away in the you know suitcase suitcase that Callie takes did Reese like go through her room or like you know like well I'm sure Callie picked like pulled out the notebook and was reading it and then maybe Tristan searched her room yeah um he doesn't seem like a stand-up guy and above searching his sister's room absolutely not so that seems likely um I'm honestly surprised that Reese could even decipher this notebook like he's not the sharpest tool in the shed I well I mean we don't actually know much about like Reese's um capability like intellect capability because we're just so often shown that like Reese is the physical one Callie is the like intelligent one but I think Reese is smart in many ways um I mean like his parents are both geniuses yeah I'm sure he's very smart I didn't mean it like that I just mean that like I'm surprised that like somebody who's like so indoctrinated and like just so clouded could like look at this and like actually give it a value of like it being valuable as a threat well we don't know how clearly becca wrote about some stuff like i'm sure some things were like mathematical equations but then other things were just like her explaining what the flame could do you know like as as callie says like becca writes like if you drown it it'll swim if you burn it it'll crawl out of the flames like true true i think he recognized enough in order to know what he needed to do to get it that makes sense um, we also learn here that August is the one who came up with the name Nightblood, mm-hmm. which I think is fun. Yeah, it is fun. Uh, and Callie really likes it. She thinks <laughs> it's a really cool name. I agree. Which I think it it's is. a great name. Um, I also really appreciate uh, that they show how Becca understands the stakes and the severity of the situation a lot faster than Callie does. Callie comes in and is like, I can save you. There's still hope. And like, as soon as it's understood like what the situation is, Becca's like, I'm going to die today and we don't have time to, to waste um, rescuing me. And here's some really important things I need you to know before I die. Yeah. I mean, I think deep down Callie is not willing to believe quite the worst of either her father or her brother. Yeah. She's not, she's not at that point yet, but, she um, will be. but Becca is very clearly able to see obviously because she doesn't have those ties of like family loyalty and yeah. love. Um, so Becca is convinced that if Cadigan is the one to get the flame and thus figures out how to work the anomaly stone, then the human race will be wiped out of existence. So it's like no pressure on our heroes in the future who are now facing Cadigan um, and he thinks they have the flame. Well, the good news is there is no flame. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so really, it's just the stakes are how long can they keep themselves alive before they figure out that they don't have the flame? I give it an episode. I would give it half an episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but again on this, Becca emphasizes to Callie how important it is that the right person takes the flame um, because it amplifies a person's qualities, good or bad, and then entrusts Callie with the responsibility of choosing who should take it. And really, they signified to me while we were watching it that she is, you know, through no small um, amount of, of, you know, significance, really like anointing Callie as the first flame keeper. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think you said Jason confirmed. Yeah, I think Jason confirmed in an interview that Callie is the first flame keeper, which is really cool. But I have a hard time believing that Becca wouldn't just tell Callie to take the flame herself because I think 
Becca recognizes a lot of Callie's amazing qualities. Um, and I personally think Callie would be a really great second commander um, because she could, both has like the intellect, but then also has the compassion um, that's necessary to make a good leader. Um, and so I, I have to wonder, like, is Callie going to look for someone else to take the flame, but then eventually just take it herself? Um, are like her people going to kind of vote her to become the next commander? Like, I just feel like Callie has to take the flame at some point. I mean, I would agree with you just as far as like show mechanics work. I think it's really strange that Callie's not the one to take the flame. But I really love the idea of Becca recognizing that Callie's intelligence and her ability to persuade and inspire people is more apt for the sort of role of the flamekeeper, who is really the guiding Seda of whoever is in power at that moment. And I think in a lot of ways that is a much more critical role um, and a much more subtle role and Callie's subtlety is really really powerful and so and it also sets up this idea that like there should be some sort of established like govern governing body of some kind to sort of check checks the and power balance. yeah checks and balances um, and like she doesn't trust anyone but Callie to start that sort of governing body and sure. so I really I really really like this I feel like Callie could do that and also have the power of the flame in her I don't know who I would entrust at this point no one that I've met yet with the flame I mean we'll see who we meet in the prequel you know oh yeah no, um, I, I we haven't met them yet but out of everyone Callie seems like easily the best contender for it um and part of me really just wants to take the flame so that we can get more scenes of her and becca uh because i really like when they interact 100 percent, they are very 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 good together they're great scene partners i did want to talk about um this burning uh, becca situation because burning witches at the stake is a very medieval practice mm-hmm. gotta say it's very medieval of them Um, But I do think, you know, this was an obvious choice. There's not a lot of subtlety at play here. Um, And there is a really interesting theme at play in this scene, but also throughout this episode. Um, This idea that, like, this modern, intelligent, advanced woman, you know, with these radical ideas comes in and threatens the status quo of a patriarchal society built on faith and led by an incompetent man is you know ultimately burned for being superior in pretty much every way um and that is a very familiar yeah tune and i also think really reinforces you know every female we meet in this prequel episode or in this um, backdoor pilot the women are the ones who are the capable ones capable and and um rational mm-hmm. um and and truly competent and it's the men we see being irrational and violent and aggressive and toxic mm-hmm. um and you know i think except august no although august I really has like a fight me bitch mentality doesn't he is, he? <laughs> uh, he's very petulant yeah. um so no i don't think, I, I you think you're right exclude, no yep. i don't think you can exclude august. i talked myself out of that yeah. again <laughs> um and I, you know, I really feel like with like the touchstones of Grace, Callie and Becca, you have a trifecta of really smart, capable women who are superior to their counterparts in pretty much every way. Yeah. And so I, I really love that. And I love the idea that this is going to be something that is carried through in the spinoff series. Agreed. Couldn't say it better myself. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Reese does settle on burning Becca because of what Becca writes in her notebook, I'm assuming, which is that 
if you burn it, it will crawl out of the flames. Um, at this point, I guess they are probably afraid of like damaging the uh, the flame. They try to like remove it from her, mm-hmm. and so the only way they can think of to get it out safely is to burn Becca's body so that the like flame itself will like escape. Um, and they can grab it then. Yeah, I mean... But, <laughs> but first off, surely there's a better way they could have gotten the flame without doing something this bad. But even if they couldn't, even if this was, like, the only option, you could have killed her and then burnt her body. You didn't have to burn her alive. Like, like actual psychopaths. Yeah, they really you know? just wanted to go for the witch metaphor. I mean, yeah. That, well, and pl- like, I, I don't think that the show... Um, knew at the time back in season five when Maddie saw uh, Cadigan burning Becca at the stake, quote unquote Cadigan, mm-hmm. um, that this was going to be like what actually happened. And so they've like tried to retcon it in one way. And I do again, like, which we theorized about like that. It's not Cadigan who actually burns her. It's Reese, his yeah. son. Um, he is, is a Cadigan. Fun. I mean, he is a Cadigan. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and Reese does seem very disturbed by what he's done. Like you can see it on his face. And I do hope that this is something that he's going to really have to come to terms with in the prequel um, of the horrible things that he's done in the name of his father and the name of Second Dawn. Totally. I completely agree with. I think that, you know, we've been really hard on Reese for very good reasons. Yeah. Um, but I do hope that this is a uh, the start of a trajectory for him, um, for his growth as a character. I mean, I would have thought, like, oh, maybe this will be an awakening point. But then he just comes back as, like, crappy as ever. And I'm oh, like, yeah, I know. He's a piece of shit. <laughs> So Callie and her allies then face off with Reese and the disciples when they get back from murdering Becca. Callie makes a deal to spar with Reese with the flame as the prize, but instead she just shoots him, takes the flame, and escapes with the help of Grace. Bill is furious and pushes Grace out of the airlock, and then Reese promises his father he'll find the flame for him, and meanwhile, Bill takes his followers through the wormhole. When we flash back to Bardo, Clark pretends that she has the flame to get her friends, only for it to appear that Echo, Octavia, and Dioza are now disciples as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, this Reese and Callie scene at the beginning, I mean, Callie comes in. She is pissed. She's got, like, her entire team behind her. Um, Reese is coming in from the other side. He's got his entire team of disciples behind him. Uh, they're, like, heading toward a clash. They all start fighting, and then... Callie challenges Reese to, like, a duel, essentially. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Um, And we'd heard many times in this episode that, like, Reese was always better at fighting than Callie was. So, like, when this happens, I was like, I'm not really sure how this is going to go. And then we get down um, to the, the, you know, bottom of the floor, which actually was also the the fighting pit. Yep. Which I'm I loved. glad you mentioned that because yeah. I was going to say that too. It was Octavia's fighting pit and that's where they have their little spar. It's a very cute little Easter egg. Uh-huh. Um, that's a good Easter egg. It is a good Easter egg. And Reese taunts Callie here of like, you know, I always took it easy on you in the basement. And Callie's like, well, okay then. She takes the gun out and shoots him in the shoulder. And then pistol whips him. And then pistol whips him. And it is the best moment for me it like really clinched Callie's character um it was such a Clark move it made me like just this scene alone I was like yes ready for the prequel this is awesome um it reminded me a lot of that moment in Captain Marvel where like the the villain kind of antagonist guy is taunting Captain Marvel of like you know can you beat me without using your powers and she just like 
wallops him with her powers and she's like I have nothing to prove to right. you and I love this moment too where it was like Callie wasn't fucking around like I don't have to prove to you that I can beat you in sparring it doesn't matter if I can or not I'm still getting that flame <laughs> right and it's also just like I am done playing by your rules yeah I'm thinking outside the box yeah. and I am done doing whatever it is that you think and I should do it was just so good it was so <laughs> so good and she's on a she's on a roll here because you know she takes out um, Reese and then she I, mean, I don't remember if she does this before or after but she turns on her mom and basically blames her for a lot of this and while I do think part of this is displaced anger um, at her dad that she's putting on her mom Callie is not wrong in the fact that Grace absolutely enabled Bill's ideas and methods in the bunker like sure. she is 100% complicit in a lot of this um, and deserves a lot of the blame well and it sounds like she was part of uh, the duo who raised Callie and Reese for a long time. Like, they only left in the last couple of years, yeah. I think. And so, like, you are also responsible for creating this mess that they're now in. Totally. And for not removing your children from an abusive parent much earlier yeah. than you should have. Yeah. Um. Yeah, totally. And so Callie is, like, steaming her way through. And she and her, you know, group demand that they let them go and they let them leave the bunker which, again, my, my Jewishness is coming through. It reminded me of this Passover song, um, which is like, let my people go, uh, that Moses and the Jews sing on their way out of Egypt. And it's, again, it's like another biblical reference. I yeah. think, you know, I don't know if this was exactly what they were intending. I highly here. doubt it. Doubt it, but it just totally reminded me of it. Um, I do wonder, like, Callie says they have enough uh, Nightblood serum for 2,000 people. Um, and I'm not sure if that just means that Becca had made that much or if, like, they've been manufacturing it somehow. And if so, like, if the whole reason behind us going into Medbay in that um, scene earlier this episode and talking to that woman there was because she's going to be, like, some kind of character in the, the prequel series. Oh, I don't know. Like, maybe she helped create more night blood or really it maybe is just like Becca already had that much created. Yeah I was thinking about this too because if I originally I thought they had been manufacturing it but it's only been five days. Could they yeah. manufacture 2,000 doses in five days? Maybe? I guess when I had thought of like doses I had been seeing those bottles that Becca has and for some reason I was like oh like each bottle is a dose but I don't think that's the case. No I don't I think, think so either. So maybe there are like already 2,000 just yeah. in those few bottles that are in there. Yeah, and speaking of, um, Callie injects Reese with the nightbloods while he's unconscious, um, which I do think is, like, it's both, like, a, it's, like, you know, something she's doing to him against his will um, as, like, a fuck you. But I also think it's, like, giving him the option of f becoming a better person and doing the right thing and joining them later. Um, it's, it's a chance to save Reese as much as it is as a fuck you. Um, and then she offers it to her mom, but Grace refuses and tells her that, you know, she's already seen Earth. She wants to see this new world. I guess a question for you before we kind of talk about Grace, yeah. um, about the whole Reese of it all. Like, what are our feelings about the morality of giving someone night blood without their consent and when they don't, like, need it to survive? Yeah, I, I'm glad you wanted to stick on this a little bit because I definitely think this is a question of consent, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think there is a little bit of a – there is a little bit of violence at play here, right? This is not just, like, her trying to save her brother because it is a violence – it's it's um it's an act of violence against his body. Yeah. And so you there's no other way to describe it. Um, there's no consent here, and so I do think it's important to talk about that. Yeah, like I don't know how I feel either. I mean, I think 
it's always that question of like what is the right choice and do the ends justify the means and I think that her ends um, of giving her brother a way to survive out in the you know world outside is good um, and is pure yeah um, the means of her doing it without his consent especially because she knows he wouldn't consent were he awake and, and is like vehemently against this yeah um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I still think I'm on Team Callie in this situation, but... Well, I don't think you have to parse it out so specifically. I mean, like, I think, again, the the show and the creators are all about moments of gray. Um, yeah. And so this is a gray moment, and our, our heroes are always flawed, and they have to be in order to be human. So I think it's okay that, like, she can do the right thing the wrong way or do the wrong thing the right way, and it's okay to be confused about it okay i like that yeah <laughs> let's settle there with the hundred it's just it's okay to be confused <laughs> it's okay to f- have confusion <laughs> um but let's talk a little bit about grace too because you know it's so it's so sad that she's like uh, you know i've seen earth i've been working towards this goal of, of going with your father to find a whole new world and all this stuff and then ultimately damns herself in by the end of this episode so she's never gonna get to go there and i think she knows too like as she's doing it like there's a very good chance that she won't and it's a really quick turnaround because grace you know as cadigan um is you know breaking through the door she finally realizes like it's pointless to try and keep callie here and um finally finally decides to help them escape um which again dooms her I mean, does it doom her, though? I I have to question, first off, Jason has mentioned that Grace is going to play a big role in the first, like, episode or two of the season where, like, the question is, is she going to make it to Callie in time? Are Callie and Reese going to have to team up to save their mother? And I have to believe yes. Yeah, when I said doom, I mean doom her out of this, like, new world. Well, sure, and and then the second part of it is, yes, like, I get Grace. I, too, want to, like, explore new worlds. I don't know if I would want... I, I don't think Reese would be better off having gone with Cadigan at all. <laughs> Zero. Zero percent. Um, I do think Gre- Re- uh, Grace could form a new life outside on this planet with her daughter as their leader. <laughs> Just like Clark and Abby. Um, I think that is maybe a, mo- a more fulfilling uh, life for her. Yeah, I also was having a hard time reconciling this choice of, like, leaving her child behind. Um, But I guess she thinks, like, you know, they are adults now and they have to make their own choices and they're acting in their own – they're acting according to what they believe is right and she has to do the same. Yeah, well, I also don't know if she thinks that it's going to be forever because Jason also mentioned in one of the interviews that when Cadigan goes into the anomaly later, he doesn't realize that there isn't a way to get back um, or right. at least that we're going to find out that he can't find his way back. Right. Um, I think he like goes in expecting that he might, he could come back, yeah. you know? Um, and obviously that's not the case. Sure. But. That makes sense. I'm also just like, I'm so, I just, I know I keep harping on this, but like how in the world is Reese okay with his dad exiling his mom like that? It's like, dude, that's your mom. Yeah. I would have preferred, um, had this moment been like, so Reese tell, tell, tells his dad, like, I'll do whatever it takes to get the flame back. Um, and then Bill did this to his mom. Yeah. And it I, was like that moment of like, I don't 
know how to feel or where my loyalties really lie. Um, we do see that moment where like Grace and Reese kind of look at each other through the, the, the window. window. Yeah. It, um, I, so I don't think that Reese is okay. I still just think he's like obsessed with getting his father's approval, which like, dude, you're never going to get. No, you're never going to get. And as we see, like Bill doesn't give a fuck about Reese. He doesn't even care that he's wounded. He like comes right up to him and his first priority and his first question are about the flame. He doesn't even ask him if he's okay. I think he does. He does he? not. Well, he does because then Reese is like, I'm fine. The bullet went right through. No. Reese does offers Reese that. Offer that? Oh, okay. <laughs> Reese tells him, like, as any concerned parent would be, like, you know, the, I'm fine. The bullet went clean through. And then and Bill's like, oh, Bill, I don't care about that. Bill's just like, <laughs> did you have the AI? I mean, yeah, Bill tells Reese to get me the AI. I don't care what you have to do. Um, and that was I think quite the phrase in this situation, given that Bill knows that Kelly, his own yeah. daughter is the one who has the flame. Yeah. Um, and he's like, essentially telling Reese, like, if you have to kill her, kill her, get the flame. It's disgusting. It is. It's awful. I mean, like he, he's an awful person. Um, we always knew that he would be, but he really is like living up to my Bill Cadigan expectations, yeah, especially as you, now. <laughs> as you said, you know, he's now fully transformed into the Bill Cadigan of our mm-hmm. head canon here at this point. And I think it'll be even more so we're going to get that feeling um, as we progress with our heroes in the future because Bill is very much at a place of, like, peace and power here, whereas, like, there's a lot of um, push and pull uh, in this prequel with, like, his life with his family um, and his obligations to them versus, like, his um, drives to, like, lead this cult and, you right. know, move to this other world. Um, yeah, and, and so like, once he leaves, those those that, that those ties are gone and he can just fully take on this role of, like, cult leader. Yeah. You're so right. That's very true. Um, so just before you move on from this scene, <laughs> while I'm on the idea of like some character of the main three are, they're going to be gay or queer Reese, or queer in some way. Um, Reese and Tristan had like a little bit of a gay vibe here as well. When Tristan was like, I'll go with them. And I like, had his hand on his shoulder. Also think that, but like, I honestly like the two of us are just so ship easy like you're such easy shippers that I literally like one tiny one tiny affirmative touch and I'm like I ship it it could have been between a log and a branch like we say that but then there are a few times when we don't ship something it's only when like the acting or the chemistry between those actors is so off-putting that I'm like I can't ship this Um, I don't feel like we got quite enough between Reese and Tristan yet for me to like actively ship it but I am interested in exploring it if that's going to be a thing yeah I'm not I wouldn't be mad about it wouldn't be mad yeah <laughs> um yeah so also just wanted to mention as we wrap this up like Cadigan just like left his son to die on this dying planet while he travels through unknown time and space with his flock and it's just like you are the father of the year sir well it's really it's a little silly I think that he just like leaves at this point I mean, maybe he doesn't leave at this exact moment. Maybe he, like, waits a while, and then when Reese doesn't come back, he goes. Um, but it, it seemed funny to me that, like, he didn't try to wait to see if Reese could get the flame in, like, a couple of days, you know? Yeah. At least. Before he goes wandering into an anomaly bridge? Yeah. Yeah, because without the flame, like, you're screwed in a lot of ways. Like, you, you know this one code, but... You don't know what's on the other side. You don't know a lot of things. Yeah, but he has his faith. He has faith. I've, I've never been more sure about anything in my entire life. Again, mediocre <laughs> white man. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Um, okay. So outside we see Callie leading her people out of the bunker and into the open open air and freedom. And the, I think it's like they're sitting on some plane or something. 
Um, and they light this giant fire and August is like, aren't you worried that people are going to see this? And she is like, yes, I am. I'm, I'm worried about it. But she's also counting on it so that the, the, the flame will attract other people to it. Yeah, I think, again, what I've heard is supposed to be one of the biggest differences between both the 100 and the prequel and Callie and Clark is that, like, Callie's drive is very much from the start to save everyone, not just to save, like, quote-unquote her people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're going to get her trying to save everybody as we, like, move forward if the prequel gets picked up, which is really fun. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, here, August has his stupid guitar that he just has with him all the time, and... I can't tell if it's going to irritate me or not. I mean, I can tell that it's already irritating It you. is already irritating me. It could be better if I, like, start learning more about August. At this point, I know nothing about him. He's just, like, a, like, hot white boy with a guitar, which, you know, there's one in a dozen, you know? <laughs> I am very into it. That's my type. Um, <laughs> I have no problem with the guitar. <laughs> but I think we'll see. it's against your type. It's against my type. I'm also just, like... The, like, eye-rolling of, like, the boy who carries a guitar everywhere. I'm just like, oh, get over yourself, Yeah, I have dude. no <laughs> issue with this. I'm very much like, yes, sir, sing me your guitar. Sing to me, Paolo. Sing to me. Um, but that was kind of the end of the flashback. That was the end of the, the, the prequel part of the episode. And then we transitioned out of Callie's story and back into our heroes and Bardo. And it definitely was a little abrupt for me. Yeah. Um, I wish they would have like drawn it out a little bit more in the same way that I think we had a nice transition at the beginning of the episode. Um, This was just very quick. Yeah, it it could have been a lot smoother, but I do think that the transition was meant to like not so subtly underline the connection and similarities between Callie and Clark. Um, You know, they even share the first consonant in their name and just the, the their capability as a really formidable leader and somebody, you know, people who are born to lead and who mm-hmm. are very well suited to it. I guess you have to have a C in your name then. Yeah, I think we do. So I guess neither of us are, are, yeah, that's okay. I'm fine, I'm fine <laughs> I don't want to lead a group of people. <laughs> um, so Clark, my Clark, my love, greatest love of my life. She wastes no time being like, yep, I definitely have the flame. Absolutely. That's like in my head right 100%. now. 100%. I know exactly what you're talking about. C- Calliope? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's she's there. <laughs> definitely. She says hi. <laughs> and I, I, I really think that if Cadigan had like stopped drinking his own Kool-Aid for just a second and like thought about this on a really logical level, he'd realize that like, Callie didn't call herself Calliope. She called herself Callie. And so, like, having Clark call herself, call her Calliope is, like, almost incongruous with, like, what she would know of Callie if she really had the flame. Um, And so I just like that, like, Cadigan didn't pick up on this. And obviously, little stuff like this is going to be what ultimately gives the whole game away. Um, because Clark can't pretend that she knows a woman that she's never met before in her life, you sure. know? <laughs> sure, sure. So we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. Like, I, I agree with you. It's probably, like, less less of an episode, more like half of an episode. Yeah. We'll find out. Um, and then, of course, we see here that Clark calls Bellamy her best friend for the first time. And I am just really glad. And I, I, I like... I've wanted her to acknowledge it out loud. Well, I've wanted her to acknowledge I can't speak. It's been a long podcast. I've wanted her to acknowledge a lot of things out loud about Bellamy, but sure. I do like that Clark and Bellamy always kind of talk around their love for each other on all levels. Um, and now she's like actually saying like, he is my best friend and you killed him. 
quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, again, everything about Clark and Bellamy just rings so hollow for me at this point. I agree. I agree. It is, That's true. It is like an insult to injury at this point. It and is I, too little too late. And I, I do appreciate the acknowledgement and I do agree they are best friends at this point. Um, But they are so much more of that of than course, that. Of that course. like calling him your best friend is so inadequate well, for it's not what like, they are. It's not like she could say, like, you killed my soulmate. Well, I mean, I mean but it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't mean this in, like, a purely romantic sense. I just mean, like, what they mean to each other at this point is so beyond what a best friend yeah. is that, like, I was like, that's that's nothing. That doesn't not signify yeah. anything to the extent of their relationship. And so I, I agree that it was a nice giveaway, throwaway, but ultimately it didn't do anything for me. Okay. Um, I think it meant a lot more to other people than it did for me I get that um we also see <laughs> that uh their friends were there all along um turns out they've been programmed as disciple soldiers and then they come forward and reveal themselves as Echo Octavia and Dioza um and you know got me curious like where is Hope she could just be standing behind the door probably like Clark and her friends don't know who Hope is. It's true. Who's this bitch? (laughs) It's totally true. I also, like, it's very possible that something happened to Hope and she's not with them right now. I do not think that is the case. I do not think that Dioza would be a loyal disciple if anything happened to Hope. That's true. I mean, she just could be, like, in a different section or something. Maybe. Maybe. And my other question is, how much programming has actually taken effect? Like, is there just, like, you know, is this obedience just for the you know, the sake of their own lives, um, or are they really committed at this point? Like, how? if I had to guess, I yeah. would say 0% of the programming has actually taken effect. Okay. Um, I think that they're probably just playing a role right now as they're trying to figure out what their next steps are going to be. But obviously, like, they have to pretend in sure. front of all of them. I mean, sure. I could be wrong. I really could be wrong, but it I have a hard time believing, especially that Dioza and Octavia could be programmed at this point because they've just come so far in their own personal development that like three months is nothing, you know? I agree. I would have to agree with you, but then also like, unless, sorry, I just like no. threw my hand up in front of Britt's face. <laughs> so I just had an idea. Unless there is some sort of technology on this planet um, that like literally can like erase memories and like program people in a way that we kind of had asked whether what might happen to Bellamy um, yeah. before we knew more about like Bardo well I was gonna say something along those lines or something like you know like almost like Zoolander level where they like brainwash them yeah something like that or also um you know I just some things about this season have really surprised me in the direction that they're taking some of their characters and that's I would true. not put it above them to do something like this that's true I mean so, like, like I don't think it would be in, in character, character unless it was like literally done through like a, a quote-unquote brainwashing machine right you know <laughs> um so no I don't think it would make sense logically for these characters to have been brainwashed in three months but I can see the show doing something stupid like that okay yeah um okay that's so the end that was our episode <laughs> uh we obviously really enjoyed it let's talk about some discussion points now so just going back to this idea of the title meaning in the episode as Anaconda, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about how this is this can be referred to um, for some of our characters in the in the episode as a whole. So, just as a refresher, the Anaconda can this is this is something that I looked up online, and obviously, like this is take it with a grain of salt. This is just my interpretation that I thought was really cool, um, but I don't have any um, basis on the fact that the showrunners intended this themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I, I think it's really cool to think about um, anaconda as a symbol of asphyxia or something as lacking um, or applying pressure from outer circumstances um, and, you know, signifying that the it will mean that in the near future, big change is coming both externally and in your personal life. Um, so I think this can apply to the entire nuclear destruction situation as a whole. Obviously, they are in like a literal powder keg of, of well... No, they're not in a literal powder Excuse keg. Excuse me, a metaphorical <laughs> powder keg. Um, a pressure cooker, if you will, uh-huh. of a situation that literally blows up the entire earth. Um, so I think that's interesting and I think very applicable for why anaconda is the code word for the missiles are in the air. Mm. Um, also, I do think this can apply to individuals specifically, you know, for Callie, she is like constantly facing this pressure um, to conform and to drink the Kool-Aid but she continues to resist on a personal level and ultimately makes really big changes, not only for herself, but for a whole group of people um, that affects their lives moving forward. And I really like this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you can apply it to Becca, I think, who is, again, symbolically choked of her ideas and like sucked of all of the, all of the things that make her wonderful. They're just negated. Um, and ultimately murdered. And she's also literally asphyxiated by smoke as she's burned alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. Um, and so, again, there's just, like, all this external pressure and internal pressure on Becca. And then in true form, I do think Bill would hear this definition and think it would be about him. But it's not about Bill. Maybe, like, a part of his anatomy is, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's not about Bill. It's not about Bill? It isn't. Okay. It's about these amazing women. So what was your favorite line? Um, I actually liked quite a few lines in this episode. Um, I ultimately went with you killed my best friend, so I'm not sure I want to help you, uh, as I already talked about above. But I also really liked the line um, when Callie tells Reese, like, I'm sorry that, you know, dad's been so hard on you, but, like, doing this isn't going to make him love you anymore. Um, Because it's true, and it's something that Reese hasn't yet kind of come to terms with, is the fact that, like, his father is never going to respect him. He's just not. Like, Reese isn't like Cadigan enough for Cadigan to respect him. Totally. Yeah. He does not see himself in Reese and therefore has no interest in mm-hmm. him. That's a really good point. Um, I had a really hard time coming up with my favorite line because there were a lot of really great moments, but, like, no lines really rung out to me except for when we were redoing this or when we were do this recap. I remember that Becca had told Callie that she turned off the anomaly stone because she was afraid that Bill was going to throw her in. <laughs> and I honestly, guys, that was my favorite line. It was a good line. It was so funny um, and very subtle, very yeah. dry. I loved it. And then I also just appreciated every single time Callie found an opportunity to call her dad a dictator or a cultural thief or a <laughs> psychopath. It was very cathartic for me, um, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, I get it. I get what it. was your, What was your favorite scene? Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious based on my gushing about it, but I love the scene where Callie just, like, takes a gun and shoots her brother instead of sparring with him. It's so great. <laughs> it was awesome. I totally agree. I think it was amazing. Um, my favorite scene was – uh, the meeting of the minds, if you will, when Becca and Callie were getting to know each other. And I just, yeah. it was so, so fun to watch. It was good. And I, like, again, that was one of the scenes that really stood out to me as like these two actresses have a lot of chemistry. And so again, that's like leading into me really wanting Callie to take the flame so that she can converse with Becca inside the flame. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think for that reason alone, I also want Callie to take the flame. 
So the next episode is 709 The Flock. In this episode, Murphy and Indra, Murphy and Indra must diffuse a tense situation. That's going to be rough. Not my first pick. <laughs> I got to be honest. I mean, Indra maybe. Murphy, no. no. Uh, meanwhile, old friends make new allegiances. Hmm. So I'm assuming that will have to do with um, Octavia, yeah. Dioza, and Echo in their training and their as well. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things. There is a two-week break after this episode. Phew. So yeah, I uh, mean, yeah. So no, a little bit of a of a hiatus. Um, I don't know if it's going to be even longer than that. They've just announced that there, it will definitely be at least two weeks for sure. Um, and my other question is, will we find out Bellamy's alive as a cliffhanger? Is that going to be kind of like the cliffhanger that kind of takes us into this hiatus? I feel like yes. I mean, I, I don't know why you're looking at me. I just, I think that Bellamy has to become more relevant in the second half of this season. And like, we're at episode nine now. Nine episode nine. <laughs> I just like, that's like a lot of episodes that's that Bellamy more than half. wasn't in. <laughs> um, and so I feel like he needs to come back now. Like, I'm mm-hmm. done with this. Also, a quick question that I don't think will be answered next episode. But where is Gaia? Where did Gaia go? Yeah, where the fuck is Gaia? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Really good question. Okay, guys. And with that, um, that was our show. If you would like to contact us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at Skycast, and you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at Perlman 89 And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And you should also plug Karoo's Instagram. Oh, yes. <laughs> Karoo has an Instagram. It's at mini, M-I-N-I, Karoo, K-A-R-O-U, on Instagram. You can follow our really cute doggy. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> we make appearances. Yeah. Very rarely, because nobody wants to see us. Um, but Karoo, in all of her sweet glory, is on Instagram at mini Karoo. That's M-I-N-I-K-A-R-U. O-U. Sorry, let me do that again. At M-I-N-I-K-A-R-O-U. Good job. Thank you. (laughs) And that is our episode. So until next time, may we meet again. May we meet again, guys. Bye. Bye.